memoir is a discrete period of time, a tiny container where you can observe and experience and feel into the connective tissue between things. Writing her memoir is how Ronit Plank came to understand why her mother left her to follow a cult guru. When I was going through all this, I didn't understand the, the scope of my loss. I didn't even want to dwell in the fact that I lost my mom because that wouldn't have been safe for me. If you had said, oh, the mom is the most important person to a kid's life, I'd be like, no, it isn't. Literally, it wasn't a safe thing to do, but that's what part of the value for me. And I know it sounds strange to go back and tell a story of pain and loss as sort of a gift. Plank's memoir, When She Comes Back, is not only a story about resilience and reconciliation, but her process in telling it is also a powerful example of what happens when women use their creativity for healing and self-discovery. I'm Ronit Plank, and this is a lesson on forgiveness. What's your earliest memory of being creative? The time I was about four and a half and five almost. And I was in the second rental house my family and I were living in in Seattle. My father had left and I was living with my mom who was getting kind of insular and on her own a little bit. And my sister was probably napping. And I went outside with a raincoat and boots and I tried to do an experiment with the rain and the wind to see if I could get it to lift off this little plastic toy I found. So I was doing an experiment by myself <laughs> and I was pretty excited to see if it worked. And I know that's as probably as sciencey as I get. So creative science, <laughs> but really trying to figure out my world. And I was so proud of myself because I think it was one of the first memories I have of orchestrating something and trying to produce it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I love that. I mean, my son loves the rain. So I'm all about the little kids in the rain. It's fun. So you lived on a kibbutz. Tell me a little bit about that journey and what you, what your fondest memories are of that time. The kibbutz is like a socialist communal work farm. And in Israel, it used to be very socialist and now they're more capitalist. So now you can pay rent and live there. And it's basically like a village. And back in the 60s and 70s and even before then, they were there so people could live there and do the work on the kibbutz, but not pay rent. And the other part about this was when I was born in the desert in Beersheba, in the southern part of Israel in the Negev desert, my family, my mom worked in the kitchen and my dad was in the fields and with the animals. And I only spent the first six weeks of my life living in their little flat. After six weeks, me and all the other children, even if you're being nursed by your mom who would just come and visit you to do that, you'd get moved into the children's house. And there you would be communally cared for by these women who were assigned to you. And so I had a group of kids my age or babies my age that I traveled up with. And wow. we ate together. We did activities together. And I didn't sleep with my parents in their house. I slept in a room with all these babies and kids my age. Wow. And then every day for about two hours in the afternoon. So you would get together with the rest of the community. And I, that's when I would see my parents for a concentrated two hours. Wow. That's incredible. So how many adults were actually in the house with you? And I think there were like three or four 
women who are assigned on a rotating basis to our group to take care of us. Mm -hmm. But the whole community that I was on, Kibbutz Lahav, was about just 200 people in the whole community total. Back then, it was an answer to making work equal for women and men to allow parents equal time to see their children and to give parents time to pursue their own social groups and not always were tied down by kids. But this set my family up for a lot of hardship when we moved to Seattle. Uh, so my father could go to school. My mom was suddenly thrust into caregiving when I was five and my sister was two to finally just be alone with us and not have anyone to help. And my father was off at school and, and teaching and working. And she was alone in a new city in Seattle, raising children by herself with no support for the first time. A year before you were moved, your father had disclosed that he had an affair while you were on the kibbutz, and he wouldn't tell your mom until you left. Mm -hmm. So now you leave, she's actually mid-flight with you, and he reveals that he did in fact have an affair, and now your mom is going off to this quote-unquote new life with this man mm -hmm. who has betrayed her. And mm -hmm. as you said, she now has to take care of kids in a way that she never has before. Yeah. So what happened to their marriage because of that? Any adult who's been in a long relationship probably knows that it's a combination of factors that can break apart a marriage or a relationship. And it's also a combination that brings people together and strengthens them. And so I think that they already had some cracks in their relationship. And if you think about it, they lived with all these other adults and they did very separate things. They didn't live alone. I mean, they slept in the same little flat on the kibbutz, but they had so much interaction with other people. And they were young when they got married that I think coming to a new city with the, the betrayal on my mom's mind, my father jumping into a teaching job and getting his graduate degree in a cold, wet new city where they had no family around and no friends or community was a real shock to the system. And I think any mom, and I know when my daughter was born, my first child, when my husband went back to work, I was really distraught. And I wanted to be a mom. I am maternal by nature, but all of a sudden I was in charge of this baby and I didn't know what my days were going to be like. And I remember feeling a little bit of despair when he left, feeling like, what do I do with my day? What do I do with this baby? And my mom just had that day after day. And I think that they didn't really know how to have a relationship, which is very common. I had to learn myself, even after I was married, how to give myself over to a relationship and be vulnerable. I don't think either of them knew how to do that. So essentially, uh, and this is in the earlier part of my memoir, my father left for Jersey. He left from Seattle to Jersey and left my mom and me and my sister. He was just done when they got divorced and he left across country. And then my mom was even more alone with two kids and trying to make ends meet than she ever had been before. And so I, I really, looking back, I really tried to capture that environment. I think it's interesting to note that in a typical hunter-gatherer clan, for every child under six, there are usually four developmentally more mature individuals who can model, discipline, nurture, and instruct the child. That's a four to one ratio. And so your mom's working with a one to two ratio. She's now watching two children on her own. And so she starts to find solace through meditation and through following a guru, Bhagwan Sri Rajnesh, who's known to more people as Osho. A friend of hers that she did meet in Seattle 
told her about this guru who was coming out of India with dynamic meditation, which he had organized and, and developed and speaking and he had books and he had tapes. And I think my mom was really interested because she wanted to feel better. She wanted to find purpose. She was looking to transcend the life and the way she felt about herself. And so Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, he later renamed himself Osho, had an ashram in India. And my mom started getting more and more drawn to his teachings and started taking me and my sister to these meditation gatherings at the Rajneeshi Center in Seattle. And so I include some scenes in my book of that and watching my mom slip further away from me because kids, they may not be able to interpret things correctly. That's what my memoir is for, is to go back and interpret them. But as a woman I know who interviewed me for another show, Maria Leonard said, in her experience, children are fantastic observers, but really poor interpreters. And so my observation skills were heightened because I had only one parent around me and I needed her very badly to take care of me. But I saw her distance as something wrong with me. And that's subconscious. It wasn't like if you'd asked me, hey, how are you doing? I would have said, well, I'm five and I don't think my mom likes me. But I think mm -hmm. I felt this idea that she was slipping away from me and I didn't have that magic ingredient that so many kids feel they have with their parents where whatever they do, their parent is there rooting them on. Yeah. And I think what's so interesting about this particular guru is that he was not for child rearing. He found them to be a distraction. He encouraged men to have vasectomies and women not to have children. I, there is another very famous actress, Canadian, who was on the series Degrassi, Anais Granovsky, and she writes that her father went off to follow this same guru and that when she visited the ashram in the summer, she was invited to watch people have sex. That oh my was gosh. His, his kind of claim to fame is that he was... Yes, the sex guru. Right, the sex guru. And so what ends up happening is that your mom calls up your dad and says, I'm going to the ashram. I'm going to go for a period of time. This is what I found so upsetting is that she said, if you don't take the girls, I'm going to put them into Jewish family yeah, services. Yeah, family services. Yeah. I'm going, I'm that strong that I'm going away. And so your dad says, fine, he's going to take you. And you're witnessing all of this. I mean, this is, you, you're obviously you're writing about this later. Mm. So mom goes off. And now you're forced into being with your dad. How, looking back, did you find the ability to forgive mom for this? Because that's not the first, we, we'll get there, but she went away not once, but more than once. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how do you forgive? Well, so forgiveness comes up a lot around my book, the question I get a lot is, how did you do that with my mom? And I would say that for me, it's more about acceptance and understanding of what occurred and reflecting on it. And I, I don't know that forgiveness has ever come into my idea of it, although it's very much what people want to know. It is the natural question. How do you have a relationship with her now? I see my mom a couple times a week. She lives five minutes away. She comes over on Friday nights and cooks Shabbat dinner. Like we're closer now than we ever were, which is stunning even to me. And I think that 
we always had a relationship. Like we were always in touch, even after she left varying degrees. But I think the intimacy, the trust wasn't really there on my part. And I don't think she was super open. So in the book, I talk about reconciliation and it's like, I saw her, but I wasn't leveling with her and we weren't really talking about what had happened. It was like five. You're like a little girl. When I was going through all this, I didn't understand the the scope of my loss. I didn't even want to dwell in the fact that I lost my mom because that wouldn't have been safe for me. If you had said, oh, the mom is the most important person to a kid's life, I'd be like, no, it isn't. Literally. It wasn't a safe thing to do, but that's what part of the value for me. And I know it sounds strange to go back and tell a story of pain and loss as sort of a gift, but to be in this safer place as an adult now, to be a mom, to have found my life partner, to feel like I understand so much more, it is a gift and it's safe for me to go back and really think about what happened and what I went through. It's almost like going back in time in a way and like scooping up the smaller, younger me and unpacking everything for myself so that I could understand it and really feel it. And because when I went to live with my father and then he ended up raising us and into my twenties and thirties, I still was like, oh, this thing happened with my mom, whatever. Like I had never really spent time on it. Other people would look at me like, oh my gosh, are you serious? But I'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just what happened. But the anger in me rose and the irritation with like how we weren't addressing it rose as I got older and older. And now that I look back on it and we've had these conversations, my mom and me, and I I include one of the most important ones in the epilogue of my book, we came to a point where I have a multi-pronged understanding, which is not forgiveness, but acceptance and not just acceptance. It's blurry. But I understand now that she didn't leave because of who I was which any parent would be like, obviously, but I think I internalized that something was wrong with me. I think that if she was given the chance to do it again, she wouldn't do it again, which is what helps me feel better. I think that she has understood that what she did was really a shame, like she gets it. And I think the fact that we had a conversation that she didn't run away from really impacted me greatly. Like I think for so long, I felt like she didn't want to talk about it and she wasn't really available to me. But now she is. And so I see her courage and her ability to look herself squarely in the eyes and me too. And that has healed me as well. There is a body of research called the mother wound research. And it comes from what girls witness from their mothers in the formative years. And it's a response to the patriarchy and the oppression toward women. And it's not a clinical diagnosis, but it's a form of intergenerational trauma. So you're impacted by your mother's trauma response. And it's so interesting because if this was a story about a father doing this, you might expect it more for some reason. But because it's a mom doing it, it takes on a degree of she must be a devil. Like it just goes beyond. <laughs> I think we're like, having what mom could do this. Yeah. Right. I think we're understanding that much more now that women are human beings. They have their own story. They're allowed to like, but I, as I said, when I got to, oh, she's going to send you to family services. My own response was what? Like <laughs> at the same time, I understand it. I have a three-year-old. It's not an easy journey. I have one, but it's yeah. not easy being a single mom with a child who could push you over the edge at times. So I think it's 
really admirable that you're able to look back with the eyes of an adult and look at what she's going through. So you said if you'd looked at the fact that you don't have a mom as a bad thing, you'd be like, no, and that's a survival mechanism. It's the same with me. I didn't grow up with a dad. It's like, oh, who cares? I didn't need that. (laughs) Having said that, what was the moment that made you decide I need to look at this? How is it impacting your current life that made you think, I got to look at this now? Things are on a continuum and there wasn't the big lightning bolt aha moment. And I used to be an actor and then from New York to LA. And then after I had my kids, I started writing and I started writing short stories. And the short stories were like dealing with closely with loss and losing family. And I wasn't talking about what happened exactly to me. I was like creating these characters. And so then slowly some essays started to pop out of me that touched on this. And then when I went to get my master's program, I switched from fiction to nonfiction and tried to avoid the memoir. And then my teacher was like, why don't you just write the memoir? You keep you're writing this like giant 20 page essay about your life. Why don't you just write the memoir already? And so I did. And then when I started digging deep, I realized, okay, it's all right to, to dwell in this space. It's okay to talk about it. It's okay to really unpack this. And I was pretty angry at my mom. Like I said, when I saw my mom being a really good grandma to my children, when they were little, It was hard. It was really hard for me. I didn't know she had those genes. I didn't know she knew how to do that. I assumed she didn't know how to be maternal. And so it was really painful to watch that. And so I went through a delayed adolescence in my 30s or in 40s. I was like, like I'm still in 40s, but I I watched her being a good mom and I was just like, I'm losing my mind. And I started being pretty rebellious around her because when I was a teenager, she wasn't around to rebel against. And so I had like my delayed adolescence around her. And that's what's so interesting because my manuscript ended up being, it's not vindictive and it's pretty even handed, I've heard. And I did my best not to villainize anyone. And and that's something I teach when I talk about memoir, like you need to hold your own feet to the fire, look at your patterns as well and explain where these people are coming from a little bit. Not all people. There are some people who don't deserve that, you know, people who commit abuse on other levels. But this kind of relational stuff in a family that hurts you but doesn't kill you, it's okay in a way to look at it and give them an even stage platform to to approach it. Yeah, I thought I, I actually thought you were really generous. You were really generous and also generous with even the social structures because the kibbutz, when mom was struggling before she made the choice to go back, she writes to them and says, please allow me to go back. And your dad's the one who had the affair, but they won't take her back as a single woman, which I was so appalled and upset by that. Again, that patriarchal sort of, and and I I don't know, nobody ever asked why. Nobody ever found out you're here so much later, but nobody ever would respond why. Is that Yeah. And I never pursued it. I don't think my, I don't think they pursued it. And also at the time, I would imagine, first of all, I want to say memory is always changing and who knows how accurate the timeline is and everything. Memories, it's been proven that when you remember things, you're remembering the last time you remember them. It's not like memories are, they're very fluid. And yes. And I want to remember like back when my mom wrote the keyboards a letter, there were no, there was no internet, hard to reach people. (laughs) Like who who even knows, right? Like maybe one right. person decided, and you're right. And and that was part of writing the memoir that I really cracked open for myself because it's so easy to just accept the stories that your parents and your family tell you. But then when I went back and I thought, whoa, it really gave me p- 
menopause as well, Kim, I thought, gosh, they didn't let her come back. But my father was the one who cheated. Like, why should she suffer? And had we come, come back to the kibbutz, very likely I would have spent the rest of my childhood with my mom. But who knows what would have happened and what kind of a person I'd be and what kind of a life I would have had. I really don't know. Um, so that and also that idea that my father left the family first was another area in writing the memoir that I got to really focus on. Because the narrative I grew up knowing was, oh, your mom left. No, I'm the one who took care of you from my father. But really, when I got to go back and tell the story from my lens, my father left his girls first. He moved across the country and began a new family. And I write this in the memoir, had my mom not said, look, you got to take these girls, like, or I'm, they're going to Jewish family services. When was I going to see him again? Yeah. Yeah. Again, I have calmed down. <laughs> Since I first read it. I almost spit out my coffee. That was so funny. <laughs> I was so angry the first time I read that. But honestly, I do feel like, why shouldn't she say that? They're his kids too, right? They're his kids too. And so if he's willing to bugger off, sure. then she, at least she's at least, she's giving any yeah, there was also this, there's this other part too that I think, I don't know what you think about this, but she mentioned to me, and it's in the book, and I also talk about it still with her sometimes, that she wasn't sure she could do a good job. She really thought we'd be better off with my father, and she felt her anger rising. And she'd been hit by her mom and emotionally abused by her mom and very bad mothering on my grandmother's part. And so I, I want to cut my mom just a little slack, even when I'm like, come on, my mom left, but I'm a great mom. You can do it. But right. she really did feel... I want to take some of this into account that she might hurt us and that we'd be better off with my father. Because you know, when you think about being depressed and really feeling badly in your in yourself and in your life, it's easy to see how you might be like, I can't do that. Of course, you and I stay. Even yeah. when we're fed up, we stay. I think it's interesting, though, that what brought her back the first time was that your grandmother, Lena, got cancer. Yes. And so she came back to take care of her, which I thought was very interesting given the way that you mentioned their relationship was so tumultuous and that mm -hmm. your mother didn't feel loved by her. So there was no reconciliation there, I'm guessing. Not at all. Not at all. My mom tells me to this day that her mother just never even said she loved her. My mom yeah. had, you know, a hard time. Let's talk about your creative process. There's some research that shows that creative writing ability is strongly familial, shared within families, but not necessarily genetically based. So spouses often share creative pro proclivities, but it's also heritable. So your father wrote while he was on the kibbutz. And then when you mentioned you started to write after you had your children. So when did it turn into something more? So creatively, my father was a writer. My mom liked to perform on the kibbutz. She's a ham. And both of my parents are extremely social. We were just talking about this over dinner the other night. Because like I said in the book, and it's true, we still see each other when he's in town. And my mom cooks and he eats. And my kids are there. And my husband's there. And it's totally weird. And also fine <laughs> and good. And and as I wrote in the book, every time my, my dad thinks about the kibbutz and brings it up and talks about how it was so great. She rolls her eyes and she's, he didn't even like it there. Like, I don't know what he's talking about. So it's very funny. Like it's very like familial and silly and whatever predictable. 
But my sister is a writer. She's a TV and film writer. And yeah. I'm a writer, but I started out by wanting to be on the center stage. I used to sing. I used to act. I did summer stock. I was pursuing acting in New York. And I think I needed that outlet when I moved to Seattle after doing theater in LA. I was part of Tim Robbins Theater Company for a while in LA. Like I was really pursuing it. But then when I became a mom, I lost that outlet. I just didn't know what I was going to do. And I started taking writing classes and I thought, oh, let me see if I'm good. Let me see if I've got anything brand new to it. Brand new, aside from writing for the theater. In fact, I was so new to writing and understanding the genre that I wrote to one of the teachers I was thinking of studying with at the University of Washington. It was a continuing ed program. And I said, do you think I should take nonfiction or fiction? What's the difference? I don't even know what I should do. And I chose fiction and it was a great outlet. And then I started publishing stories, which made me feel like, oh, my hunch was right because I need validation like all of us. But of course, I'm like a super insecure person at heart or I was. So I needed the outside world to tell me I, I belong and I'm accepted. And mm -hmm. so then I started writing essays and people published those. And so I then realized, wait a minute, I think I've got something here, a voice or a perspective or something. Like I don't totally suck. Like I don't like to do stuff that I totally suck at. Like I right. just don't. It makes me feel bad. I'm not a good athlete, right? I'm not, it's not my thing, but this I enjoy doing. And then I began podcasts after that. And I wrote, like I write short stories. I write essays. I write articles to help parenting. I write craft articles to help people write. And I wrote this memoir and I have a short story collection coming out sometime later this year that won an award for women over 40. And a lot of those short stories were born before I knew I was going to write a memoir when I was a new writer. And it's called home is a made up place. And it has those themes of isolation and abandonment and all this stuff I wasn't ready to work out from my own story can't, comes out as fiction. I, I love that you're saying working out because I do believe that as creatives, you need to write. I know that for me, there's a certain kind of feeling I have. It's a certain kind of quote unquote depression that is like, oh, this is, I pinpointed, this is time for me to write. So what's the most difficult thing for you about? And I know you're just finishing your book, right? I'm in the midst of a proposal. Yeah. And it's like I'm so interested. I love asking that question because as a writing, <laughs> as a writing teacher myself, like I loved, I'd love to hear what you feel the answer is to that question for <laughs> you, actually. It's hard. It's weird because right now I haven't had as much time to write because I'm pushing out these podcasts I'm doing and promoting all that stuff. But the hardest part about writing is probably I don't have a lack of ideas. Sometimes my mind doesn't want to bend into the organizational process that I need. Sometimes I'm faced with material that I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. So sometimes the structure, the structuring of it can really stymie me until I know the structure. I get a little irritated, but unfortunately you often don't know what the structure should be until you have some of the material. So sometimes I just need to trust the process. It'll come out. It'll be fine. Just do the work. And I think the second part of that writing thing is sometimes it can be really frustrating for writers and sometimes me too, the publishing industry, it can be really hard to break in or to understand how it works. And it's frustrating because as an artist and a writer, you're trying to put this story, this work into the world that you feel so passionate about. And then there's this other leg, which is trying to get people to promote it and accept it and, you know, publish it. Like it's very, it's like attention that is hard and doesn't go away. But as a writer, I think your main thing is to first create and worry about where you're going to place it later. That's the part I don't like. It just to answer your question is that writing can be agonizing and torturous. I feel like I'm just, especially as I get older, really 
pouring things out. Because I, I know if I'm called to write it, it's because I need to work through something. I might not be in the mood to work through that thing when all of a sudden I'm writing about something that clearly needs to come out. And so I'm willing to do that work. I'll go there. But then this next phase of having to, I have a new agent now and she's wonderful, but the process of having to get that agent and then now we're out to publishers and then the process of having to hear the publisher's feedback. And my issue is that I've aligned my life so much to be about fit. And I'm really lucky to be surrounded with clients that I love and a team that I love. So I don't have the thick skin that I used to when I was like a little bit younger and nuttier and like you're not a scrappy. To... Are you saying you're I'm not, not a scrappy? scrappy. <laughs> I just don't care about the drama. And I'm like, and, yeah. and but I find I can get twisted more if you don't like it. It's never a question. It shouldn't be a question of do you like this because my soul needs to do this. Uh, so I'm, yeah. I don't really, I don't really care that you don't like it. But the problem is, I have to care I know. if I want it. Hook to get the publishers to That's want it right. Right. To, to, yeah. be in the, to be in the system. I have to be participating in a certain way. So I don't love this part. So I have to navigate my own self-esteem during it where I'm like, you don't suck. It's okay. You're allowed to write. Then I'm like, oh yeah, who needs to write? You don't need, nobody needs your voice. about that? Then I go down the road of this. Yes. You know, I interviewed Barbara Houston, who's another author. She's written seven books and she's like, every time she writes, sits down to write, she feels like, can I do this? And I thought, okay, good. I, this, is, this doesn't go away. So in terms of visibility, were your parents willing to have their stories told? Did they have a choice? Did you just (laughs) just decide you're going to do it? And then afterward, having to respond to people's interpretation of what you said the truth was. I will say that when I was writing fiction in my master's program, and then I moved to memoir, my mom's face fell. I said, oh, I'm going to write a memoir. She's like, oh, God. Because I think that everyone knew what my memoir would be about. So I think everyone was happier when I was writing fiction. But so not all memoirs do this. And I wrote an article about this that you can find at my website about whether or not you share your pages with someone that it's about, right? Do you share? And some memoirists really believe that if people hurt you or you had a experience with them, they don't get to judge or weigh in at all. I chose for me, because I have a relationship with my parents and my sister, to let them see it before it went to press. I also wanted to check if I was correct about certain things. And my mom, in a nutshell, my mom ended up being really happy with this version because she had read some essays in the past that were harder on her. And so I was really scared to meet with my mom after she read it. I was so scared. But she said she was actually pretty grateful that I chose to tell the story this way. My Mm. sister told me she, she was good about it, but she said it's really strange to read about yourself as a character in somebody else's story. And she's a writer too. So she, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I didn't spend a ton of time talking about her motives because it's not my story to tell. If she told our story, she'd tell it differently. And actually my sister did point out two really important things that I'd forgotten in our story. And I included them in the book. I had forgotten, for example, that when my parents are fighting toward the end of the book, my sister said, don't you remember that I started hyperventilating and you took me to the window to breathe? And I said, Nope. And because I was focused on my mom and making sure she didn't leave. And that's another point about memoir that just because you remember something differently doesn't mean it doesn't deserve to be there. Um, So I went back and included it anyhow. And then my father, he gave me nine single spaced pages of notes about my (laughs) memoir. I know. 
I always get a laugh on that one. And some of them, the nicer comments were about like, oh, you got that Hebrew word wrong. And we weren't, that's not the right war in Israel, whatever. But some of them were comments about, for example, I talk a lot in this book about how my clothes didn't fit and how I felt too big and how my belly was too big. And I felt fat and people called me names and stuff. And my father wrote to me in these notes, I, I had no idea your clothes didn't fit and you make it sound like a combination between Oliver Twist and Cinderella. And I was like, oh, so I went back and we had, let me just say, we had some words after when we met because I had to go to bat for some stuff and I was a little irritated with my father. When I saw you wrote down in, in description about yourself, you were four. When I saw her, I immediately understood what I was not. I wasn't dainty. I wasn't delicate and I wasn't quiet. I decided I was too big and too much of a person unable to shrink even if I wanted to. And I so resonated with that. You had a relative who called you a donkey. I was just like this sweet little girl. And I see, I've seen you put pictures of yourself in the book. And I was like, (laughs) how did this sweet, adorable little girl decide that she was all of these things? And it puts into perspective for me just what you said about how children are wonderful observers, but very poor interpretators of what these things mean, because you were so sweet. And anyway, so then- yeah, so I really appreciate that. And I, I love that you pulled that quote out. And yes, it's also relative, which is again, why, again, I'm a memoir advocate, or I'm a story advocate. That's why it's so important to remember that your perspective matters. And what I did in my life happened, my choices and my opinions were formed by this stuff. And so the way I went into the world after that is because of how I felt about myself and then about my father. So what I did do is I went back and I did just adjust some of the dialogue or some of the background on the clothing to make it clear that like he wasn't seeing me in too tight clothes and not doing anything about it. I never told him because what kind of a person was I if I couldn't fit into the hand-me-down clothes? Like I was wrong, not the clothes. It wasn't, I, and I, I know maybe that was the adjustment, but I'll just say as a little girl who was a chubby little girl who didn't fit into the clothes in the kids section, I didn't read it that way at all. I totally understood what Thank you were you, saying. Yeah. It's regardless whether the clothes are your size or not, you still don't feel like you're fit in them. Yes, exactly. You're feeling like you're feeling you're feeling your body. And then people who are idiots, my <laughs> uncle, my I think my uncle used to call me the raspberry when I had acne. Like oh, when I started to get no. acne, he used to call me the raspberry. Yeah. I know just the things you remember. And you at that, like looking back now, if I had said, and my mother was so useless at defending me, if I had actually If somebody said this to my child in my presence, they would not be standing. They would not be in my. So I I do. I would just tear a strip off of them. But just again, there (laughs) seems to be something about like the 70s, like where people, (laughs) right? Like, and I say this as a child of the 70s, where where, adults, especially adult men, got away with saying such stupid. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, how did and it you just, just have to watch one of those like '80s bro movies to get the sense oh, of it's like know what's going on? And you and the <laughs> thing is that you, it's true. Your decisions get shaped in relationship to these things, and yes, it changes. And yes, your your life goes on, and you don't. You know, sometimes you get trapped in a loop for a long time before it 
before you can unplug this shiz. But anyway, so (laughs) so now the public is receiving your memoir. And how did that visibility feel? Did you feel very vulnerable? Well, I felt okay about it. No, like, I think I'm a loud mouth. (laughs) As someone, another memoirist put it, I put in the book what I'm willing to talk about and share. And one of the biggest risks for me was to talk about the parts of being uncomfortable with my father as I went through puberty and how I felt like his boundaries weren't that great. That was the part that was a really big sacrifice for me because I hadn't publicly mentioned that before. And it was scary to me. I was afraid of what my dad was going to think about that. I'd kept those feelings bottled up for so long and that ended up being okay. And so my book has been out almost a year now and Mm -hmm. I can't believe it because it has just (laughs) been amazing because I've gotten to do these kinds of projects with people like you, like to, to be on your show. And I've been at, you know, book events and I've been at book clubs and stuff. And sometimes people will say this one woman, this stands out to me. She said, you know, your father is the one who took you and your sister in, but you seem hard on him. Like you seem like more harsh with him in the book, but why? And so I had to answer that question and look at myself and talk about my own shortcomings. And my father and I do have a little bit of friction, but even in the past four or five, six weeks, I've gotten softer toward him. You know, things change all the time. I don't mind talking about this and I actually do it as frequently as people have me as a guest. And I, it'll be interesting when my other books in the future come out to talk about my family anymore because I've, they've been in the room with me for a while. (laughs) Let me just ask you, I'm interested in outtakes all the time. What didn't make it into the book? Well, I guess on a really large scale, this is a memoir and not an autobiography and an autobiography is the entire life of someone. And it's more of the celebrity or famous people genre because I'm still alive. I hope I'm going to live a lot longer. So I don't know have an autobiography to serve up and I'm not famous. FYI. <laughs> Yet. The, mem- <laughs> the memoir is about a discrete period of time, like a container of time where you experience something or where there's like a connective tissue between things. So for example, if you went on a summer Alaskan fishing boat job, like that would be a perfect container for a memoir or the time that you were in the hospital and what happened during that time and how things led up to that. So for me, what didn't make it to the, me- to the memoir was the whole rest of my teenage years and college and all that, because I didn't know where I was going to end the book. I really didn't know. I was a teenager for a long time. So I chose to end the book when my mom leaves for the second time. But then there's like this tacked on, there's this like last chapter and then an epilogue, a little bit of what happened to me afterwards. So I'd say that didn't make it. And other scenes that didn't make it might be like scenes with my mom. There was this one scene of me driving with my mom and what it was like to be with her and and then going to the health food store with her, blah, blah, blah. And then I was just like, this isn't adding to the drama. It's not adding to, it's not highlighting the pattern of my behavior or hers. It's not doing anything. It's just baggy. And so I got rid of it. And I hate to waste anything. So I hate it when I write something and it's not in there, but I have to trust. That's another part of writing. I hate to waste my effort, but sometimes nothing is wasted. And I posted that recently on Instagram and Facebook that nothing is wasted. It's all helping you get to what you need to say. It's helping your process. Maybe it's helping somebody else. It's fine. Mm -hmm. So that those were the things that didn't make it. And actually I've been asked a couple of times, well, how did I get closer with my mom? How did this happen? Why didn't you cover that in the book? And it is an area that is absent. And so one of my first editors said, maybe you'll do a second book about your relationship with your mom now and how that happened. And so there are things I want to say about that because that could be a, that could be a nonfiction too. Like how do you guys are really hooking into like, how do you, how to right over? Because I love this notion that it's not 
forgiveness continuum. Like it was more about acceptance. I, I really think that is a powerful idea. And I think too, as again, back to this patriarchal conversation, there are men who are going to make mistakes based on what they've been schooled to do. And so if they don't have an opportunity to be forgiven in some way, what's their incentive not to be assholes continuing on? To grow. Right? That's yeah. right. There has yeah. to be some moment of forgiveness and it has to be, a sp- and it might not have to come from the person that they violated or hurt or whatever yeah. it is. It might not come and that's just fine, but it has to come from somewhere at, in a genuine way that actually causes their transformation. I'm not just saying, oh yeah, so we forgive you. Well, yeah. And also the thing about, yeah, the thing about forgiveness too, and I don't know if this is because I'm Jewish and I'm not like a Catholic or Christian or something, or if it's just me, but I think there's a, a thing about forgiveness that makes me feel like, okay, you're forgiven, stamp of approval, we're done, close the book. I don't think it's like that because mm-hmm. just like the stages of grief, you know, they say they don't, they're not actually stages. They all happen at the same time in different order and they continue with forgiveness. Like I can get upset if I think about certain things in any relationship where I've been hurt. Like I can rise up and get angry again or feel less than or feel like, wait, why did I put an end to my sadness about that? Like, why am I saying it's okay now? Like it's, it just changes all the time. I know if I've had a fight with someone who I I care about deeply and we've resolved something that that I feel that they did that hurt me what the next time that we have an argument that might come up again and I might think I knew that they do this because they did it back then so is that forgiveness I don't know it's like a working movement toward trying to understand and it's like alive to me forgiveness makes me feel like it's over and right, to and me, it's not. understanding, yeah. compassion, acceptance, and just thinking and reflection is a moving thing. And that's what it is for me. And that's what that, I love that. That's amazing. We talk a lot about women's leadership on this podcast, and I am attached to the notion of feminine leadership because feminine to me is feminist. So at the kibbutz, your mother liked being connected to an industrious group of like-minded women she could rely on. I'm curious just from what you observed as a child and now what you understand as a woman, do you think that women lead differently? And if yes, would you be willing to call it feminine leadership? Women do lead differently with the exception of some women. I think women have more room in their leadership to learn where maybe they could be doing better. I think that maybe because so many women have imposter syndrome, there might be this aspect of our leadership where we are open to learning better ways to do things or better ways to be heard. Whereas maybe men in leadership aren't always, or maybe it's harder for men and ego gets involved. My previous self was extremely insecure and I still have that child in me that doesn't believe I'm good enough. And I don't know how many women share that. And and I'm sure there are men who share it too, but I just don't know that all women come out with their fists ready to go. Like I, you know, I'm not a fighter that way. I used to be defensive. That's actually a lie. I used to be a very defensive person and very difficult to critique or to say what was wrong with something I did. I hated it. And so I wouldn't let other people talk. And that's something that changed for me in the past couple of years. The more courage you have and the more self-reflection you have, the better leader you can be. And I think you have to have humility and vulnerability. So it's an interesting question for me to think about because my father raised me. So in some ways I have a very masculine approach to things in some right. ways. You know, I'm like, right. I've got that kibbutz, like Sabra kid thing. Plus my father raised me. What I don't like in any leader is pigheadedness 
or right. obstinance or lack of empathy. And I think that women who lead might be more aware of how difficult it is for women to get things that they want accomplished done. And so there might be more inherent empathy there. I think there's too a harsher you already mentioned like that self-criticism because you believed when you were little that if you were strong and knew yourself, you would end up in the single women's sisterhood, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. And isn't that what we're told? Oh, you're going to be single. Oh, look out. That's like the worst thing the you worst could ever thing. someone. I remember being in New York once and this woman, and I am single, but this woman was, I don't know, she was just problematic with me and my dog. And I said to her, you're single, aren't you? Oh, and no, you went, did. Oh. oh, yes, I did. You did. <laughs> yes, I did. And she went, oh, like I said, she had a poopy diaper or something. Like, it's crazy. It's crazy to me. I'm like, and I hid my hand so she didn't see that I didn't have the ring on. But I was just like, I was like, isn't it fascinating to me that this is your horror? Not you could be a mass murderer. Lord help you, but you're single. Like what a sin. Like it's crazy to me. Because well, yeah. it connotes. I feel like it makes people, there's this feeling that you're unwanted, that you're unlovable, that no one wants to choose you. Right, but right. sometimes being single is really the better way to be. And, and at the same time, I know that I've done the hardest work in my life in relationship with the people I care about. And this loops back nicely, I think, to that idea of why my mom left in the first place and why people follow charismatic leaders or gurus. It's like this idea that someone will save you or tell you who you are or really see you or elevate you or make you find that enlightenment that you seek. But in my experience, my most vulnerable times and my most breakthroughs have happened when I'm pushed by people who love me, who I have no vulnerability with and who I have a hard time admitting my faults with, that's when I've grown the most. So for someone like my mom to go and, and seek this guy, and she'll tell you now, recently she said it again to me, like she never would do that now. She doesn't know who she was back then that she right. would do this. That this man is going to know you instantly and see your value and then understand who you are. And so you'll understand yourself better. It's just a, it's a lie because the truth is these gurus and spiritual leaders, they don't even know you very well when they are just trying to find reflections of themselves. You, know, you can't grow that way. No, I was reading something about him where he chose these nine mystics and they were all women with large breasts. <laughs> that was right. You and I thought, that. yeah, I was like, oh my God. Okay. But I'll say this is that we talk so much about leadership, but you have to be leading yourself first is what I believe. And so oh, yeah. you're looking for someone else to figure out who you are. I think it's a combination of both. I think there was, there's definitely a time to be in relationship, but there's also time to be in relationship with yourself. And that's yes. first and foremost, I believe, because there's so many people who will never know themselves by virtue of that. And for me as a creative, and again, this is not a story that was given to, we'll see it with women like Shonda Rhimes or with Ava DuVernay who talk mm -hmm. about not choosing marriage because they're in relationship with their creative work and, them, and themselves. And I totally mm -hmm. understand that. I feel annoyed that I have to explain that sometimes mm -hmm. to people but or that there's this cultural belief and then again what it means to lead because if you look at the way even Oprah mm -hmm. and she's been with Stedman she has and she has Gail but she's mm -hmm. not married so there again there's many different paths for women yes yes this yes. is back to this demonization of mom doing what she making that choice for herself it ultimately was 
about self-discovery. So I think we're not used to hearing these stories from women still. We're in like 2022, but we're still not used to hearing that a woman is a whole person with a different set of objectives other than just motherhood. It's complicated. I think giving women and men, but I'm focused on women mostly during this podcast, is giving women the opportunity to embody all of the complexity of whatever our choices may be. What is your wish for every other woman? I wish the first thing that came to my mind is that they're safe, that they're, they don't have to worry about their bodily harm or being hurt. You have all of the answers when you ask the right questions. Be visible. Speak your truth. Every other woman needs you to lead. Voice Lessons is produced, written, and spoken by me, Kim Cutable. It's also produced and edited by Sergio Miranda and associate produced by Jessica Manalga. You can find out when we post new episodes when you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. And if you liked what you've heard, we would love it if you leave us a review. For other inspiration, updates, and show notes, subscribe at voicelessonspodcast.com. Thank you.